0: On September 2, 2015, Alan Kurdi, a three-year-old boy fleeing the carnage of the Syrian civil war with his family, drowned while making the crossing between Bodrum in western Turkey and the Greek island of Kos. Images of his body came to symbolize everything that people are willing to risk for a better life in the face of strict policing of borders. Although Europe's migrant crisis has abated, the politics and ethics of human migration remain one of the most contested issues today. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on the politics of migration. Hello, and welcome to the City Politics Podcast. I'm joined as always by Konstantin Vossing, our resident spheromancer and keeper of the city crystal ball. Constantine, how are you doing? Excellent, how are you? I am wonderful, thank you for asking. Today we are joined by Sara Silvestri, Senior Lecturer in International Politics. Sara's current research is on the role of the Catholic Church in the global governance of migration. Welcome. Hi. We also have with us Andrea Innes, Lecturer in International Politics and a member of the Violence and Society Centre at City University of London. Her current research is on state violence in international migration processes and policies. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Hello.
0: Hi. So five years ago, Europe experienced the peak of what's been called a migration crisis, but the debate on human migration remains a prominent issue in many of the world's wealthiest countries. In the UK, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, has mooted giving human traffickers life sentences for smuggling people into the UK. Donald Trump returned to anti-migrant themes in his first public speech since leaving the White House, and polling for the 2022 French presidential election has Marine Le Pen, leader of the anti-migrant Resemblement National in a dead heat with Emmanuel Macron. It seems like a good time to talk about the politics of migration. But before we can do that, we need to look into the crystal ball. Constantine, do the honors.
2: Thank you very much. As always, it's my distinct pleasure to ask uh, academics with lots of expertise Questions that will force them to just say yes or no. And so let's see uh, how Sarah and uh, Andrew are going to uh, gonna be doing. Uh, so let's start with Andrew for the first five questions, uh, and then we switch the order around after that. Uh, all right, Andrew, question number one, and just the yes or no answer. In five years, will Europe have a fairer system to share the burden of refugee claims? Yes or no? Yes.
1: Yeah.
2: Sarah, what do you think? Yes all right wonderful we're, we're loving it this is great thank you question number two will the current definition of refugee that is found in the refugee convention remain in place andrea yes sarah
3: it depends on what kind of uh, timeline you're looking at it will remain in place in the short term
2: i will take that as a yes but there's uh, plenty of uh, you know room for elaboration and discussion here thank you number three in 10 years, will Britain have a more liberal approach to migrants, Andrew? Yes. Sarah? Yes. Question number four, will climate change become the largest driver of human migration in the next decade, Andrea?
3: Yes. Sarah? Not necessarily the largest. A major component of human migration. So yes. that makes
2: it no if it's not the largest, no. right? Okay, wonderful. We just try to have some sort of controversy here and some differences. Sorry, sorry for pushing that here. Number five um, Will we be able to make meaningful distinctions between asylum seekers and economic migrants in the future? Andre? No. Sarah?
3: To a certain extent, yes.
2: All right, yes. Wonderful. Now we switch the order around. That's only fair, right? Question number six. Will the number of people crossing borders irregularly increase over the next 10 years? Sarah?
3: Yes, it depends on which kind of governments are in place in which parts of the world. All right. It depends yes. on whether they start oh. with an open door policies or not.
2: Okay, um, I, I'll log it as a yes. Uh, and then we'll can, we can, again, we can elaborate on that. Um, Andrew? Yes. Number seven. Will the pattern of migration flows change in the next 20 years? Sarah.
3: The geographical pattern, probably
1: not. Andrew. 20 years, yes.
2: Question number eight. In 10 years, will Western democracies be more dependent on the labor of migrants? Sarah. Yes. Andrew.
1: Yes.
2: Question number nine. Will migration still be a controversial issue in Western societies 10 years from now? Sarah. Yes. Andrew. Yes. Question number 10 and the final question for today. Will COVID-19 and the threat of future pandemics be used to justify stricter migration policies?
1: Possibly, Sarah. yes. Yes. Andrew. I think yes, an attempt will be made. Yes.
2: All right. Thank you very much. Uh, this was great. Thank you so much, everyone.
0: Where to start? Migration is such an expansive topic that it's quite difficult to get a handle on where to begin. So one of the things that I think is useful to do is to sort of explain it to me like I'm five, right? Uh, So I think when we talk about migration, one of the things we need to discuss is what drives people to move countries, right? This is not a trivial choice that people make to pick up their entire lives and move to another part of the world. So perhaps our experts might be able to tell us a little bit about what is moving people across borders? What are the push and pull factors? Andrew, would you like to start off?
1: I think the first thing that it's important to say as a caveat is that there are often lots of motivations for any one person's movement. So states love to categorize why people move and they like to put people in particular visa categories, um, which is a useful way of making legible the movement of people around the world. But um, it's important to always remember that one person might have multiple reasons. And there's also a lot of sort of crisscrossing um, in terms of motivation. So you can't necessarily isolate one reason, which is why it's often so difficult to make that separation between people who are moving for economic reasons and people who are moving for humanitarian reasons. They're often the same people. That said, to sort of understand the main ways that migration is categorized in terms of the motivations for movement, um, I think states generally put people in three different categories. These are people who move for economic reasons, so people who move throughout the visa programs for work primarily, so you might get a temporary um, non-immigrant work visa to work for a particular country for a particular amount of time, you might get labour quotas in different countries that um, bring people into complete particular Projects or to fill certain sectors in the labour market. So that's one. The second one is family migration. This is the biggest category, actually people who migrate to join a family member abroad or people who migrate because they've married somebody from a different country. There's definitely crossover. For example, you might start out as an international student or on a short term economic visa and meet somebody and fall in love with them and get married, you then become a family-based immigrant if you immigrate based on that petition. So this is one of the first places where you get this crossover. Um, And then the third category is humanitarian reasons. And so generally this is through the refugee and asylum system. There's also other forms of um, temporary protected status that would fall under humanitarian. Of course, this doesn't cover every person who wants to move all the time. Oftentimes people fall outside of these visa categories.
0: Great, thank you very much. That was a very effective summary. Sarah, is there anything you'd like to add?
3: Um, I wanted to also reflect on the the other category, the very much debated category of illegal migrant, which, according to the specialists of migration studies, there is not such a thing because uh, uh, there is uh, no global sort of authority telling us who can move, when, and why, and how. But basically, uh, individual member state, individual countries, individual uh, sovereign states uh, set up. a Certain rules to control their borders and controlling those acquisition of citizenship and uh, criteria for becoming uh, a recognized member of whether of uh, the you know family unification or workers or uh, student categories. So the illegal migrant category is very much defined by the narratives and narratives and the political choices of individual countries, as opposed to being something that is wrong. Or ethically wrong, or, or started from the wrong motivation on the part of migrants, and this is really something really ought to be uh, highlighted.
2: Maybe one interesting question in my mind uh, is: since uh, in, in the past few weeks, for some other reasons, I've uh, I've dealt with arguments about um, uh, you know external labelling and and, and and sort of self-perception and identity. It just occurred to me that obviously, since you talked about these categories of migrants. Um, that might also apply to migrants, does it? Does it matter how we label migrants for how they see themselves, for how they deal with the host country in which they live, whether we call them refugee, whether we call them asylum seekers or economic migrants? Um, is that sort of the first way in which a host society presents itself to a migrant and then maybe uh, you know turns them off in some way too and then sort of makes the process of integration more difficult or is this just the techn- techn-
1: technicality? I think that's a really good point. Um, that you know, these designations come from the state, but obviously they're kind of applied to people. And so then to ask to what extent are they internalized by, by the people who receive these labels? And one of the things that I've looked at particularly in my research is how this applies in the case of asylum seekers, um, because the different countries in which somebody will seek asylum are very, very particular about who is, who is an asylum seeker and for how long they are an asylum seeker. So just to give a quick overview, um, The the main distinction between a refugee and an asylum seeker, I don't know how familiar everybody would be with it, so I'll I'll just kind of cover it really quick. A refugee is a person who's given uh, refugee status. Once they leave their home country, they would be recognised as a refugee by the UNHCR or by a state in which they have sought asylum. So they can receive it internationally by the UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So, you know, people who are in refugee camps, for example, or urban refugees in cities where the UNHCR is the authority um, as opposed to the state. So this happens in various places. The other option is to apply directly to a state for refugee status. And when you do that, you become an asylum seeker. So a person who seeks asylum is in the territory in which they want to remain. Um, and they're asking for the state in which they're present to recognize them as a refugee. And this is generally how states understand asylum seekers. So you become asylum seeker once you file that application for asylum and you remain an asylum seeker while the application is in progress. Once status determination has been made, your status changes. You either become a recognized refugee and then different countries have different procedures for um, official resettlement and for a refugee to transition to become a permanent resident in the country and um, it's usually a slightly quicker process than if you try to become a permanent resident for an, a different reason. Or you might become a failed asylum seeker at which point your your rule is inadmissible or removable, generally, and so in the research that I've looked at, what I found really interesting is that this is very very limited, right? So you are only an asylum seeker after you've filed an application and until the status determination is made by the state to whom you've request to whom you've made that application. But for people who are traveling, the point at which they become an asylum seeker happens much sooner. So if you're say fleeing a place in which you're experiencing persecution, you might think of yourself as an asylum seeker before you leave that country. And at that point, you're not yet a migrant, right? But you think, well, I have to leave, I'm being persecuted. So is there a moment there which you think I'm going to seek asylum? Is that the point at which you become an asylum seeker? Is it after you leave the country and you're on a journey, this journey might see you passing through several states of varying levels of safety before you are at the state in which you wish to remain and you know how this is governed again, produces problems. But are you an asylum seeker during that whole time? And I think for individuals, yes, they consider themselves to be asylum seekers. For states, they often think that those are the people who are undocumented and so um, are generally kind of demonised in terms of how the media reports it. You also have the problem that a state will decide whether or not you're admissible as a refugee at the point at which the state says no, you then become failed asylum seeker, removable, inadmissible. And that doesn't mean that as an individual, you stop feeling like you can't return home because of persecution you don't stop feeling at that moment like an asylum seeker if you've identified yourself as one during this whole process up to that point and so you know this raises problems um in terms of how safe people feel and the refugee system is supposed to provide safety for people who are fear and persecution and safety is a very kind of subjective feeling how do we feel secure it's not necessarily something that a state can tell us you're secure and you're not it's a very kind of subjective feeling that an individual will hold.
3: I also would like to add that uh, as um, Andy said once you move, hoping to seek asylum, you may have uh, family connections, family members in, scattered in different parts of the world. They may have different kinds of status. And so your final objective is, is to reunite with your family most of the time. And you don't really care for what kind of avenue you're going to get there. And you may be prepared also to take the illegal votes. Um, I also wanted to uh, highlight that there is a number of, uh, of, of although states have the, the power to, Uh, do the final decisions and to uh, label then these individuals. At the end of the day, there are also a number of international organizations, of humanitarian international organizations, NGOs, and also other kind of actors, such as um, Religious organizations. My own research is specifically focused currently on the role, for instance, of the Catholic Church in helping in resettlement programs, but also in helping to change perspectives and narratives around migration. And one particular lens that uh, uh, humanitarian organizations and faith groups often bring is this uh, dimension of the global perspective, a transnational perspective. So according to their lens, these people need to be helped to resettle to uh, improve their living conditions, regardless of the um, boundaries, the national boundaries of our nation states, simply because they, um, the, the central element to focus is the human dignity of these individuals and the, the, the protection of their own lives
2: maybe if I can follow up. Um, so, you know, we have these categories, though, right? We call migrants and refugees and asylum seekers this and that at different points, at different stages, and you guys did such a great job at, at sort of opening up that, that debate and showing all the intricacies of that and how it relates to people's individual perception. But should we stop uh, labeling uh, migrants, uh, people who are somewhere in the world going somewhere else in order to to live there. From an ethical perspective, maybe David can shed some light on that, um, and then we move on and ask uh, Andrew and, and, and Sarah.
0: Well, there is this very large debate in global ethics about whether we should have open or closed borders and uh, on what basis we would justify it. I enjoy this debate, uh, but it is one of the debates that I find a little bit frustrating in global ethics because it seems very detached from the world as it is. The idea that states will surrender control of their borders in the lifetime of anyone on this podcast or listening to this podcast seems to me to be a science fiction scenario. I think there is a more interesting debate to be had on the ethics of migration, looking at illegal migration or irregular migration as a form of non-compliance with an unjust global order. And I wrote a whole book about this. Uh, if anyone's interested out there listening to the podcast, you can pick up Global Poverty, Injustice and Resistance by Gwilym David Blunt, in which I make this argument. Uh, But the argument is basically we live in a world which has an unjust distribution of the benefits and burdens of social cooperation in the global economy. About a billion people get really badly disadvantaged, and this drives some forms of irregular migration, people fleeing severe poverty to cross borders. This is the foreseeable and predictable result of our current economic system. And we often view these people as being, well, doing something wrong. You know, There's often the language of cue jumping is brought in, but if you take the global perspective, as Sara was just saying, and you look at these people's life circumstances in a more sort of global context, you understand why they would leave. Because ultimately, at least for me, there's nothing different between fleeing a war zone and fleeing severe poverty. These are human rights crises that greatly diminish the ability to live a worthwhile human life. So of course, people try to escape from them. So when we try to parse out someone fleeing a war zone from someone fleeing endemic, severe poverty, it seems very artificial to me. It seems like we're basically talking about the same thing. The problem is, is that there's a lot of people trying to escape poverty. And if we actually wanna solve that problem, then we have to think about how deeply involved we are in perpetuating cycles of inequality. And, you know, people just aren't up for that cheerful discussion right now in democracies. They tend to be more looking after themselves and looking after distant strangers.
1: I have just sort of two things to tack onto that. One was in response to um, Constantine, just on the categories, I think one thing that maybe isn't talked about as much as well is how much states love their categories to the extent that we're not just talking about with regard to asylum seekers or refugees or humanitarian migrants. But if, for example, you enter a state on one visa based on a certain set of circumstances and then your circumstances change, if you don't properly file that change in circumstances, you can also become removable very, very quickly. So, to give you a really practical example, if you enter the US on say a work visa j1 visa exchange work or student exchange visa and while you're there you happen to get married when you get married you have to file a lot of paperwork and pay a lot of money to change your status um the reason that you have to do that immediately is that you've undermined the temporariness of your particular visa actually i think the j1 was maybe a bad example say f1 instead because j1 has a a few um, places at which you could still remain. So if, you, if you're if you on a non-immigrant visa, basically like an F1 visa or an H1B visa in the US um, and you undermine your non-immigrant status by having some type of intent to remain, such as getting married to a US citizen, all of a sudden your visa status no longer applies to you. So despite the fact that you have the visa and the paperwork, if you leave the country and try to get back in and there's evidence that you're engaged or you've gotten married to a US citizen, you will not be allowed in, you'll have to file paperwork. And if you file that from outside of the US, it can take a very long time. If you file it within the US, it can also take a very long time, but at least you're there living the life that you had planned to live. And so states are very, very particular about their categories. In response to uh, David's point, I I think the ethical debates are really nice. And just to kind of push a little bit on this idea that states aren't going to change during our lifetimes, I think it's probably true. I like to be a little bit optimistic if I can. Um, And what I tend to think about is the identity implications, um, because when we think about the state and the power of the state to protect its sovereign borders. We also are assuming that the majority of people in the world hold state based identities, so that our national identity is our primary identity and the one that is the most important if we're moving around the world. You know, we'll say, oh, I'm British or I'm a US citizen or I'm Canadian or whatever. But this doesn't account for a whole lot of people, people with migrant identities, people with transnational identities, various hybrid identities, post-colonial identities. Um, And so when you start to see numbers of people with these kind of various non-state based identities growing perhaps, maybe that's the point at which we'll see sort of more erosion of the power of the state to kind of um, really hold hard to these kind of very fixed and harsh borders. I don't know, that's maybe a bit optimistic. But I think identity is something that we can meaningfully bring into the debate.
3: And adding to that, I was also thinking that uh, although um, a migrant or an asylum seeker may change the status in the course of their lifetime because they, they decide at some point they are entitled to become naturalised, for instance, or they finish the protection period, and they become legally uh, resident immigrants. They may still be perceived through the lens uh, through which they were seen in the first port of entry. And also, even when you become a naturalized citizen and you have uh, uh, children of your own, there is a risk that your own children will remain labeled as migrants. This is very often the case, for instance, of people of uh, uh, minority communities, for instance, of uh, Muslim communities. I work, uh, again. Some of my research is on uh, the participation of Muslim communities in Europe, and some of one of the major hindrances in uh, um, allowing them to fully be part of uh, European uh, democratic societies is actually these lens, these uh, labels that uh, sees them as something separate and something not belonging to Europe because they have a minority faith, but also in particular because they come from originally their parents or their grandparents come from a, a another country and they were Uh, they entered Europe, uh, the European space through the uh, path of migration.
0: Yeah, the identity issue, I think, is really fascinating because it pushes on this idea that we have mono identities, right, monocultural identities. And this is becoming perhaps, you know, a a very eroded concept or a very out-of-date concept, if it ever actually was true. You know, this myth of sort of national unity does seem to be, at least in my mind, a historical artifact of the 19th century that didn't account for the multiplicities of identities that human beings have, and yeah, the future might be pushing us towards a much more pluralistic way of conceiving ourselves. The other thing, and I think it comes out from both of uh, both of your statements, is can the state actually control migration? Uh, it, it tries to, but you know, look at Trump's border wall, right? You know, his entire first term was spent on this idea that you could build a massive wall across the southern border, and this would somehow stop the flow of migration into the United States. Obviously, it wasn't successful, right? There has not been a wall made by a human being that another human being hasn't found a way to tunnel under or climb over or skirt around. So I think migration, it can become a very sensitive issue because it shows the limits of state control. And we like to think of the state as being this omnipresent leviathan like Thomas Hobbes painted for us, but oftentimes Leviathan is a little, well, lazy, a little unable to sort of achieve its ends. And I think that comes out of, you know, continued efforts to suppress illegal migration
3: that always fail. Yes. And, uh in a way paradoxically you know to stop migration flows which i is something i don't think is stoppable but paradoxically one would have to stop uh, the attractiveness of uh, the country of immigration so you would have to stop being a, a flourishing economy or a, a, a happy so peaceful democratic area of the world to be less attractive and also you probably need to tackle the uh, causes of migration poverty uh, humanitarian disasters you know environmental disasters some of which you know maybe wars can be prevented through a big uh, uh, consultation at the international level, but definitely environmental disasters
1: cannot be controlled. So I would say what we've seen generally over the past three decades in terms of um, immigration policy, particularly in Europe, I should say Europe and the UK maybe at this point, in Europe, in uh, the US and in Australia, is this attempt to try and make themselves less attractive countries of Immigration, and they're not doing it by changing their sort of economies or lifestyles or anything like that. They're doing it by trying to implement deterrent policies. So they're trying to make people think, "I don't want to go there because I'm going to be badly treated," basically. And, and that's what they're doing. They're mistreating immigrants. And and so to give some examples of this, there's very violent policies at the border in terms of if a person is an asylum seeker, is planning on filing the case for asylum, then there's some international. Law International Convention that states cannot, that states have to uphold, basically. So things like the Convention Against Torture, they can't remove a person to a place where they're going to be tortured. The norm of non-refoulement is part of the refugee definition, so they can't remove somebody to a place where they're likely to be persecuted. So states have to kind of take asylum seekers and, and let them file an application for asylum um, and at least process that application. You see this getting heavily restricted in terms of expedited processing where people aren't kind of getting... Full intricate consideration as individuals. You get things like people being pushed back at the border so they can't get to the country in which they wanna file, being sort of pushed on um, land border crossings, pushbacks have been a lot of information about pushbacks in the Mediterranean um, as well. You see um, in the US where they increased this border wall, I mean, this they first started to kind of increase fence and increase governance over the Southern border in the 90s and it's just sort of grown and grown since then. And you can see in, in tandem with that, particularly in, I think, in the sort of late 1990s early 2000s a massive increase in border deaths because people are not deterred from moving because it does nothing to address the reasons why people move it just makes the journey a lot less safe and so you get more people experiencing violence, more people dying on the border, much more dangerous journeys. You see then agents who can assist people in crossing a border. So, you know, sometimes they're referred to as people smugglers. Sometimes they're referred to as coyotes. There's all sorts of different words to talk about these people, but people who might help people cross a border, who have expertise in the border, in border crossings, they end up being able to make an awful lot of money doing that. And so increasing border restrictions, does really nothing to deter the movement of people. It just makes that movement a lot more dangerous because it's not addressing the reasons why people move in any way. It's just trying to make migration an unattractive choice. But when you're talking about people who really need to move for whatever reason, going back to those reasons at the start, maybe it's humanitarian, maybe it's economic, maybe um, it's a number of other things. These deterrent policies are not powerful enough to stop them.
3: In addition to that, those uh, deterrent policies are actually going uh, against the very own uh, values, the funding values of the countries that are actually uh, receiving the migrants and the asylum seekers. For instance, in 2012, uh, the British government set up the so-called hostile environment policy, whereby all sorts of instruments were put in place once uh, migrants and asylum seekers had arrived into the UK to prevent them from accessing basic services, such as the, the healthcare or housing support or education, schooling and so on. So this came under under very intense scrutiny on the part of human rights groups, because they saw that this was going against the very principles, the founding principles of democracy and human rights, which actually this country and the whole of the EU support. If
2: you had to explain to someone who lived in a country that was a target of migration, why it is important to do these things, to make that was sort of always the undercurrent of of, of our statements here. Or why it is easier to, why it should be easier for people to migrate? Why we should be understanding and uh, of the drivers of migration? Why we should look at migration as an ethical issue? How do you explain that to someone who is maybe not violently anti-migrant, but who has reservations about migration living in the target country? What kinds of arguments would you would you sort of um, would you present to that kind of person?
3: Economists and demographers uh, bring a very practical, sort of totalitarian approach that is, you know, our Western European economies are in, badly in need of certain categories of, of, of uh, semi or uh, under uh, low skilled workers. And therefore, without them, our economies cannot flourish. And you cannot benefit also from a fully working health system, for instance, unless you have nurses from a certain country and so on. Uh, another rationale that is often brought is that of our European, again, uh, wealthy countries are aging and therefore without these new population arrivals you uh, you don't have uh, uh, anyone to support again the economy and society more broadly you uh, you have no one paying taxes in you don't have enough people in working age to pay taxes to then support the healthcare system and the rest of society but then i believe that in in uh, in particular in within the european context one lands that uh, uh, some institutions some uh, Uh, human rights groups, but also to a certain extent some institutions within the European Union, such as the European Commission, have been pushing for uh, embracing the notion of solidarity, the sense of sticking to your principles. If you believe in these principles of solidarity, of peace, of uh, caring for, for the others and caring, caring for human rights, you then it's automatic for you to be sensitive to the needs for humanitarian protection in particular or for the needs of families to unify.
1: I think that's a really difficult thing to address, to say, like, how do we convince people? Um, because so many people kind of aren't ready to be convinced. And I would go as far to say that immigration policies, anti-immigrantism in general, is always racist and racializing. And I'm not saying that people who are anti-immigrant are always racist. It's not that simple, right? We, we live in very racist societies. There's a, a kind of core of structural racism, at, you know, within, certainly within the UK, within, the, within our societies, generally, globally. And I think that until we can address that, until that has changed, um, which involves Kind of all of us sort of educating ourselves about the history of racism, um, being able to become more sensitive to it, being able to truly understand what kind of how structural racism operates, um, then we're never going to be able to change attitudes on immigration because it's, it's fundamentally racist when we think that we're going to make exclusions based on a completely arbitrary category that we call citizenship.
3: There is also another, again, utilitarian perhaps uh, explanation for justifying opening the borders to migrants and refugees, which is that of stability. If you want to maintain a, an area of peace and security, for instance, within uh, the borders of the European Union, it is in your interest to uh, ensure that your neighboring states, your immediate neighbors, are at peace so that they, uh, you don't uh, see any follow up of conflicts so or you don't have a, a spillover of violence into your own countries. One
0: of the- ways that I like to explain sort of my pro-immigration stance to people is by asking them to do a very simple thought experiment that probes the idea of luck egalitarianism, right? And the idea is, should people's life chances be determined by arbitrary characteristics, right? Should we say that anyone born with blue eyes isn't allowed to make over 30,000 pounds a year? No one would agree to that because it runs up against our basic moral intuitions that you can't limit someone's life simply based on something that they have nothing to do with, right? No one chooses their eye color. And the flip side of this is obviously no one chooses where they're born. The state that we're born into is literally like a lottery. Uh, It's been described, I think it was Karen who described it as the last feudal privilege. It's something we do nothing. We simply inherit it. Uh, When some people say, oh, well, I've earned my citizenship, well, unless you have immigrated to a country and gone through the process, then you haven't earned it. You've simply been born into it. And that privilege is fundamentally wrong when we think about it. We don't think that people should have this sort of generational assets given over to them without any sort of payment being made. And part of the payment of being born into a wealthy country Is that you have to have a fair and non-arbitrary immigration process. At least that's my take on it, and most people can follow that line of reasoning. Uh, The problem that I think is that a lot of people don't realize how lucky they are uh, to be born into a very wealthy state like the United Kingdom or the United States, and they think that their wealth or the wealth of their country is completely detached from history. You know, in the case of, say, the United Kingdom, the history of empire, all the same with the United States. There's a history of empire there, too, or the history of contemporary capitalism and how it distributes the benefits and burdens across the world. Uh, And once people start thinking about themselves in a more global context, in a more historical context, then they start to see that citizenship, nationality, they've won the lottery by being born in certain places, and they need to be fair about uh, the consequences of that.
2: Hi, let's let's take this and also what uh, Andrew and Sarah said as a point of departure to push this uh, even a little bit further than we already have. Uh, now, um, in these arguments uh, that justify, explain a sort of a more sort of a, well, not porous trend, that sounds uh, bad, not porous migration, but a more liberal migration policy, I suppose, is is that you can sort of, uh, you can lay, you use as a label. And also justifying that by past injustices, justifying it by uh, the simple fact that the migration will uh, will continue if, this, if the reasons for migration continue to be in place. And as uh, Sarah emphasized, also point out sort of the benefits of migrants too, the 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 incoming, the target country, if we do all of that, then we still face a situation in which, within those target countries, there is already a distribution of uh, of resources, a distribution of privilege um, that is also unique to these countries. And in these countries, um, most Western countries, uh, we we, we tend to have the um, the, uh, experience that the people who are most pro-migration are also the ones uh, that are least threatened economically uh, from uh, incoming uh, migrants. And the ones that are, uh, that are uh, most anti-migration um, uh, are actually the ones that are more threatened economically by, or at least they perceive uh, uh, to a larger extent, uh, a threat, an economic threat by migration. Now uh, that is also definitely racialized and, and these things are difficult to in- disentangle and so Andrea, I totally agree with you on that, but the question still remains: how do you explain that to someone who would respond? well, listen, you know what you 're saying is all great, but then i 'm already being screwed over in my own country by my own elites, and now they 're saying, all right, we need uh, migrants are great, and we need to you know we need to we need to have do the, the right thing and, and so you know, I'm being screwed over twice here, uh, and this is not because well, I have a problem with migrants per se. So the argument might go, but uh, yeah, because I'm I feel like I'm being screwed over from 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 different angles uh, here. Um, uh, what's the response to that, Andy?
1: I would say yes absolutely you're being screwed over in your own country by your own elites you're also being screwed over globally by global elites by the system of global neoliberalism because of that is what has caused you know the main forms of economic insecurity in these sorts of I mean the sort of community that I grew up in right in northeast England there's a lot of economic insecurity there and you can trace it to neoliberal policies that started in the 70s um, generally And so, yeah, I think it's systemically, it's a global system. And what we've seen with neoliberalism, and I'm by no means a political economist, so please excuse my kind of rough rendering of this, but what we've seen is the movement of capital, the movement of jobs. We've seen multinational corporations, big business being able to move all over the world and do basically whatever they want. And people have been restricted. And so, you know, if jobs are disappearing from from where you are, and going somewhere else, you can't follow those jobs. And so you become economically insecure. And and so, you know, I think it's a falsehood to blame migrants, but the elites want people to do that, right, that it's it's a way of displacing attention in terms of what's really going on in the world. There's a really nice article um, that I recommend a lot written by Joseph Nevins, and this is back in 2007, I think, but it traces it using a case study of, the uh, international coffee industry and looks at kind of how the, how economic neoliberalism maps on to migrant deaths, basically migrants, cross, migrants moving from coffee grown locations and crossing the US border and the immigration restrictions that have led to violence and deaths on the border. It's a really, really great article. I think it's in Geopolitics, Joseph Nevins, I think 2007. Um, but I totally recommend that if you want a really nice detailed case study that explains exactly how this works.
3: One of the interesting things here also to reflect upon is that uh, we've been talking about uh, immigration policies and immigration movements of people uh, around the world. But one interesting area of reflection that has been opened up and where, which I find quite interesting to follow is that of reflecting on immigrant and integration policies which look at how once people have arrived into a country, how they can then participate meaningfully and not in competition with the rest of society. So both on the part of these faith-based organizations that have been researching, but also on the part of various international actors, I've seen an emphasis on this, on, the, on working with host communities alongside with migrants and asylum seekers, because host communities, as also as Andri said, really need the support to uh, improve their own life conditions in order to then to better support the arrivals of these new people. Plus, I think there is a a general need for rethinking uh, politics and society in a meaningful way, whereby we all as humans are addressing the challenges of sharing resources and Uh, uh, redefining in a way the political economy in a fairer manner so that everybody can have an equitable share in the riches of society. So this is a bigger sort of political project and philosophical project that is open ahead of us, that should not just be uh, the concern of scholars like us, but which is very, very much touching upon the daily lives of both immigrant and asylum seekers communities, as well as of the uh, everyday person in the street and the receiving communities.
0: One thing I would say is that workers don't improve their lot by fighting other workers, not to sound like too much of a Marxist, uh, but we can see that there is this defined narrative that tries to pit uh, people in the working class against each other, uh, which says, you know, all of your faults, they're down to people crossing the English Channel illegally. That's completely false. You know, If we look at the distribution of wealth within countries like the United Kingdom, it is not immigrants who are hoarding wealth. Uh, it is a tactic of division. However, I, I don't want this podcast to come off as sort of a, a meeting in Red Square circa 1962. So I think we can listen to some concerns that get brought up often in the ethics of migration with a degree of sympathy, at least in sort of the more conservative circles, which point to the idea that communities are often you know, shared. They're shared lives between people. And this is something that people feel is pressured by migration, right? People feel that their way of life is being destabilized when, you know, the the high street becomes very different than it was a generation ago. And there's an intuitive amount of sympathy to this, right? But I would say we need to be very careful about covering the past in a sort of golden haze of nostalgia. The fact of the matter is, is that migration has been part of the human story since the human story began, Human beings travel all across the world. There has never been an isolated human community that has lasted very long. Uh, we are, uh, you know, as a sort of a group of people, we often interchange with each other. If we look at the history of London, for example, we see that there are people from all over the world in London, basically from the beginning of London, when London's founded by the Romans, there are people from all over the Roman Empire locating in London. Uh, so this idea that the national community is a necessarily closed community just doesn't ring true to me historically. And I think if we wanted to live in a community like this, It would be terrible, right? It would be like living uh, in Celebration Florida. And I don't know if you've heard of Celebration Florida. It is a planned community uh, by Disneyland that is owned by the Disney Corporation. And in order to live uh, in this community, you need to agree to have your lawn trimmed at a certain height. You can only paint your house in certain ways. There are certain ways that you can live when you live in Celebration. And if you break the rules, then out you go. I don't want to live in a community like that. No one wants to live in a community like that. I want a community where there are multiple different ways of living the human experience because seeing other people live in different ways enriches my life, right? It's a very selfish reason to be pro-immigrant. You get a different and more rich experience of being a human being and that I think is a story that needs to be told to people. Immigrants don't take things away from us, they give us a lot uh, and I say this as someone who is lightly an immigrant, right? You know, I obviously wasn't born in London, but a lot of people weren't born in London, who live here, and that's what makes the city magnificent.
1: just to to echo that, I think that's a really great point that you know we do and we should value communities, but the national community is not necessarily a meaningful community because we don't necessarily have any shared life with the other people within the national community maybe that's kind of totalistic to say, maybe there are some elements of shared life, but the communities in which we live are much, much more local. And so I think the other thing to think of is how we conceptualize community. When we see these immigration debates, it's often saying like things are changing too much. We don't want to see this change. We wanna protect our communities. But communi- we can conceptualize communities as quite fluid. They grow and they change. However much you try to keep a community the same over time, You're seeing intergenerational change. You're seeing the introduction of different phenomena. You're seeing different technology, different media influences, all sorts of different things introduced to it. Why shouldn't it be different people as well? Communities change. It doesn't make them any less valuable or any less confident, security providing
3: and still on communities. There is some interesting work on the part of Professor Geddes, the Director of the Migration Policy Centre, which looks at actually attitudes of uh, the general population across Europe vis-a-vis migration. And he's very concerned with the sort of wrong the wrong foot through which some of the well-meaning voices that are in support of open borders of, of a more generous approach to migration and islands are in fact hitting the wrong button when it comes to the receiving host communities, because they try to uh, come sort of top gra- top down, offering a grand view of cosmopolitanism and giving the impression that the everyday person does not have the intellectual tools or the abilities to appreciate the real value of migration. And so he's very keen uh, in uh, suggesting or urging policymakers as well as scholars and activists to translate this message into more practical, more everyday, more meaningful ways to talk about migration and to relate the experiences of migrants with those of the population of the receiving countries.
2: Thanks. So maybe we can turn our attention a little bit also to the drivers of migration. There's uh, one thing where you guys uh, were not entirely in agreement with one another, um, and that was uh, the role of climate change. Um, I think um, you know, both of you sort of said that climate change is a driver of human migration in the next decade um, that we've already talked about a little bit. Um, but uh, Andrew said it is the greatest driver, the largest driver. And, and Sarah was more reluctant to, to 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 sort of to agree with that. Um, so how about climate change and other drivers of migration? And then, you know, there's, there's a number of things that David already mentioned as far as the uh, the, 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 global, um, uh, the, the global location of poverty, uh, and also Andrew made that point several times, the the distribution of, um, of resources and, and privilege on a global scale is concerned. So sort of all of this, if you reflect on all of these reasons why people migrate, how's that going to uh, uh, develop uh, in, the, in the future?
3: I believe that kind of question goes well beyond our expertise. Uh, personally, I'm not a specialist of um, environmental-led uh, migration movements, so I gave my answer on the basis of my impression as opposed to scholarly knowledge in the field. And also because I was just looking at statistics, for instance, about uh, asylum seekers and migrants into the European Union, and it looks like, you know, uh, not necessarily climate Change being the main uh, cause for mobility, but rather political instability at the moment being a major uh, driver of movement and poverty caused by political instability as opposed to uh, migration, climate change, although climate change is in the picture. I, I find this question in general of addressing the root cause is a really daunting question because it's really... Calling for a global intervention of powers and global institutions, it's it's a big task. It's basically the next task for international relations to address global inequalities by looking in a way, turning the world upside down and prioritizing what is happening in the southern hemisphere and and, and then trying to change dynamics of what is happening. So, hopefully, once those structural issues of economic and political instability in certain regions of the world are addressed, then probably certain laws will diminish but this doesn't mean that people will lose their aspirations to improve their lives their education and to move outside so I don't think that that will stop
1: movements altogether I would say when I think about these drivers of migration and again that's not my particular area of study I tend to look at migration journeys um, as, as the kind of particular segment but when I look at these drivers of migration I don't think it's simple enough to be able to identify one driver even for kind of most individuals who move and I think we still see kind of the biggest category of migration being in that family-based category and I I think that's still the case but the reason I would pinpoint climate change as a major factor is because I think it will be something that's massively underlying these other drivers of migration. So, you know, it depends on how we want to categorize, how we want to identify a given driver. But I think if we're looking at conflict, climate change is going to provoke conflict over scarcity of resources. We're going to have um, territorial changes. This is if climate change continues on the, on the predicted trajectory, it's going to have a massive impact. Political instability, I think there will be climate change as an underlying cause of political instability as well. Economic um, need. I think, again, we can, we'll probably see climate change as being one of these underlying forces. And so with that in mind, you know, I don't think it's simple enough to say climate change will, will be the, ma- the major driver. I know I said yes to that question, but it's definitely qualified. right? But I think it will be one of these major underlying causes to other things that will cause people to move from place to place. But, yeah, I, it's, it's just it's not that simple. And it might be one factor in amongst many
2: and related to the, uh, the the drivers of migration, how about um, the patterns of migration? This is another area where you guys uh, had a little bit of a disagreement. Where are, gonna, where are people going to be going uh, in the next 20 years? Is that going to change? Where are they going now, mostly? And I think some people would be surprised to see that, yeah, they are going to the West, but they're also going to lots of other places that uh, you know we, we, would, we don't think about as sort of host countries for migration, but migrants do. So where are migrants going? um and um where they're coming from and how is that going to change in the next 20 years or
3: so? i don't feel i have the crystal ball to you know tell the future in general but there are quite the immediate uh answers in that for instance with Uh, with Brexit, immediately after the Brexit vote already, we saw a lot of people moving back to Eastern Europe, having been, you know, people from, for instance, Poland, having lived for several years in the UK, and then moving back to uh, their own home countries, because they felt that maybe the economic opportunities were going to be diminished, also because they were feeling, perhaps, if you remember, there were some racist attacks, that they were just being unwelcome. And so when the whole strategy I, I mentioned earlier of uh, uh, making the UK a hostile environment that actually pushed people away from the UK. I'm not saying that uh, immigration is stopping to the UK, but it has diminished. Also another example where we saw a short term sort of reversal of migration was uh, in Spain at the time of the economic crisis, when a lot of Moroccans, uh, that's the majority of the uh, immigrant population in Spain would be of Moroccan origin. A lot of them went back to Morocco because again, the economic opportunities were diminishing in, in Spain. So that's why I'm saying that the uh, socio-economic opportunities of different countries will define how the attractive they can become to different types of uh, migration.
1: Yeah, I agree with that and I think over the next 20 years maybe we're going to see some changes in terms of distribution of wealth by country across the world. Maybe we're going to see different countries massively grow in their economies and other economies shrinking and so I think that would have an impact on patterns of movement and you know not just talking about undocumented migration or regular migration but in terms of the visa categories as well and how people manage migration globally and I also think that there's going to be more people more people will move because as networks grow as family ties change as there are more people with transnational identities then we'll see more movement following and that was kind of one of the things that I was drawn on before when I said, you know, maybe we will see a change in kind of how states manage migration, because we might see a, stri- a, a change in the global population in terms of how it orients itself towards state-based identities. But again, maybe that's just me being optimistic.
0: And that note of optimism is a great place to end this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe, maybe write a review, maybe recommend to your friends. Hey, maybe pick up the phone right now and call your nan. Tell her about the City Politics podcast, and then she'll say, "What's a podcast?" And you'll be able to tell her all about podcasts, and you will open a new world of auditory entertainment for your grandmother. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at the City Politics. You can also follow Constantine at K underscore Vossen, and I'm at GD Blunt. Every new follower is just mm, a cherry on top of the Sunday that is my life. I'd like to thank our guests this week. You can follow Sarah Silvestri on Twitter at. Sarah One Silvestri, all one word. Be sure to pick up Andre Innes's new book, Colonial Citizenship and Everyday Transnationalism from Routledge. You can follow her on Twitter at online underscore Andre. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Take care, everyone. That's the end of the episode i'm gonna make myself a cup of tea maybe have a biscuit bye